Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's hard-hitting Axis Arrows. Learn more about Easton's cutting-edge and fuse carbon arrow technology today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, Editor Christian Byrne. Welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we are thrilled that you've taken some time to be with us today and uh, hopefully we can bring you some wisdom and some words of encouragement to increase your success this year. I'm excited about today's show because uh, here it is the first week of February and it looks like with this crazy weather we've had this winter, uh, at least hasn't been much of a winter for most of us and it looks like Uh, It's already starting to look and smell a little bit like spring out there. It's been a beautiful week uh, here, and uh, I'm starting to think about getting outside, uh, doing some shed hunting, uh, taking a look at some of the areas where I may want to do some food plots and things like that. And that's why I asked Dr. Grant Woods to join me today. Uh, Grant, uh, I'm sure many of you know, is uh, the... the, uh, proprietor, the purveyor of GrowingDeer.tv. Uh, he's uh, very, very knowledgeable on whitetail biology, uh, whitetail management, and hunting property management. And Grant, it's a pleasure to have you with me today and uh, help me get off on the right foot on some of my food plotting for this year. Christian, thanks for the opportunity. I'm excited too. It's kind of, I'm in Missouri and it's rainy and 45 degrees. It feels like a spring day outside today. So, and here it's not even the Super Bowl yet. We're just coming up on Super Bowl weekend, so. That's right. You know, and that's a great point to make. We need to keep stuff in perspective. Although it's warm and been warm throughout most of the Whitetail's range, that can change overnight. The weather is extremely unpredictable, these weather patterns. And so I want to caution guys off the bat to, to plan and to do your soil test, get everything in line. We're talking about that. But don't drop any seed until normal seed planting time because it can really cost you if you jump the gun. Before we jump into that, you know what I really would be interested in getting your take on, Grant, is just with this warm winter that we've had generally across most of the whitetails range, mm-hmm. what, what does this do for the animals themselves? Obviously, the I would think that the stress levels you know, that deer have experienced this winter are, you know, certainly lower than normal. And what does that bode for us for 2012, you know, fall hunting when it comes to animal health, condition, antler size, body size, that sort of thing? You know, great point. And so often, as a scientist, I get put in the uncomfortable position of saying what's obvious, what seems obvious may not be correct. So let's let's back up and look at this just a little bit. When it's let's say we're having a normal winter. Last year was a rugged winter throughout most of the Whitetails range, and there was certainly a lot of stress and a lot of deer mortality due to winter. Just deep snow, wicked cold, way late in the year, and a lot of a lot of mature deer and of course young deer didn't survive. Middle-aged deer tend to be the ones that survived those conditions. Mm. When we have a warmer winter like this, I mean, there's hardly any snow cover in Iowa. No snow cover. At all, where I am in Missouri, we've had about maybe a half inch of snow total all winter. Yeah, very, deer very, are not, very little throughout the northeast here, too, unless you probably get up into very northern New England, you know? Sure. And, and so because of that, deer are not pushed. And they may not be taking as many calories in. 
may not be ingesting as much food. I know my trail cameras, we have some research going on, not just hanging them on the side of a tree, and they're just not getting as many images as a normal winter. And and so if deer aren't ingesting as much as normal, they're not storing as many minerals, calcium, phosphorus, the stuff that we need for fawns and antlers, as they might if they were pushed a little bit harder if it was a normal temperature. And so it may backfire on us a little bit. Hmm. See, that is interesting. I, I never would have thought you'd say that. Yeah, I know. It's, I've had this conversation a couple times recently, and I'm getting those cross-eyed looks. But, you know, it, it's kind of like... Uh, Creation was made along some kind of averages or normals, and we never really have normal, but there's kind of trends that way. Mm-hmm. And, and either side of normal is usually a bad thing. And, and, for example, we do know for a fact that when you have a much wetter than normal year, of course, vegetation tends to grow more. Therefore, the nutrients are spread out literally thinner because there's only so many nutrients in the ground through more plant mass. Therefore, when a deer takes a bite, each bite is not as concentrated. It's more watered down, literally. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and sometimes a little bit drier where the nutrients are more concentrated is better than a little bit wetter. And who would have thunk that until some researcher really figured that out? Well, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just think about it in terms of produce, okay? If you have uh, a bunch of grapes... You ever notice that sometimes the biggest, plumpest, juiciest grapes aren't the sweetest ones? That's right. You and know, <laughs> there's more sugar. Know. There's more sugar concentrated in those ones that are just a little bit shriveled. You know. Absolutely, and and so on a on a winter that's this far out of normal, way warmer, deer are probably not taking in as many calories, and therefore not as many minerals along with that. And, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be horribly or devastating or anything, but it may not be that gee whiz year everyone's thinking because they had such a mild winter. And the second thing is, of course, cold, long, prolonged cold does a great job of taking out um, insects. Mm -hmm. We're not losing the insects now. Adam and I were out yesterday working and actually pulled some ticks off of us. You know, I'm in February. I don't want to start thinking about ticks until turkey season. And the deer, I'm sure, are the same way. Though, so warm body. A lot of people don't realize this, but ticks are not—they're not attracted to warmth at all. They're attracted to what we exhale. So when we exhale, that's what attracts ticks. And and so when we do a tick test, we don't see many ticks in the area. We take a chunk of dry ice. When dry ice melts, it's the exact same thing as what we breathe out. Same chemistry. So you yeah. just put a piece of dry ice on the ground on a white piece of plastic, ticks coming to it. Mm. And when that deer is out there breathing a lot because it's hot and it's got that big old fur coat on, it's attracting a lot of ticks to it. Okay. Well, that's interesting. And uh, just just kind of a, I don't think we need to go any deeper there, but mm-hmm. an interesting take on it. You know, something for, yeah. for people to consider. And maybe, you know, maybe that, that being the case... Um, heightens even the importance of the minerals and the food plots that we might do this year. You know, know it does. You never go wrong with trying to keep the habitat as healthy as it can be. Healthy habitat gives us great deer. And one other thing before we jump in, obviously, uh, despite the fact that there's not a whole lot of cold and snow, that hasn't really changed the timing of antler drop. And I know 
uh, from talking to you that you guys are already uh, heavy in shed hunting mode there at the Proving Grounds. I know from uh, anecdotal evidence here in Pennsylvania, from what I'm seeing and from what friends are seeing, I, I think that you know the vast majority of bucks have dropped their their antlers here so um, you know shed season is in is in fine form right now and with the lack of snow cover uh, you can get out there and have at it that's exactly right my wife's uh, putting a whipping on me I think we're about eight to one she's found eight I found one so far this year uh, but I, I, I think sheds may be dropping a little earlier over here in this part of the world in the western states because we had such a wicked drought this summer. Clearly, deer were very stressed. I mean, just, you know, everyone watched the news and saw Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas and parts of Missouri. And and at least on my farm where we do a lot of research, uh, our deer, a higher percentage have dropped already this year than normal. And what time would you normally expect the deer to drop their antlers there at your place? Well, when, when deer are really healthy, they will clearly hold them into February, even March, and and we rarely see antler drop. We had, we had matter of fact, the deer I was chasing, it was a, a really top-end deer on my property, a great big eight-pointer, and I finally, just right around Christmas, got a pattern, and I knew where he was going. I had to go out of town, and I, I mean, I was... I was coming back to shoot that deer. In my mind, I was coming back that afternoon, I was going to shoot that deer. And Adam, works for us, called, and I said, I got some good news and bad news. All right? I figured he had a flat on the tractor or something like that. And Well, the good news is Giant 8 is still alive. The bad news is I'm holding a shed in my hand. Mm. You know, 20 days before season ended, Giant 8 shed. Wow. And he, he wasn't wounded to my knowledge, in the trail camera pictures, he looks very healthy. He held his body weight. He just, just lost his antlers early due to stress. Mm-hmm. So when deer are healthy, they maintain higher testosterone levels. And in antler shed, when testosterone drops below a certain threshold, guys always think they knock them off on fences or whatever. That's not the case. I've seen many times in research facilities, research pens at universities where I work, Two major bucks fighting this time of year. You know, these are well-fed, pinned, nothing wild about them. Captive bucks, really well-fed, fighting, just really shoving, you know, like big linemen shoving. And the antlers clearly aren't coming off. There's got to be, I don't know what the leverage and everything, you know, 500,000 pounds of pressure on there. And the next day, the loser this time of year will shed. Mm. And, you know, he got whipped, his testosterone dropped down, and the antlers come off. Wow. It happens that quick happens that quick when they're ready to go they're ready to go well unfortunately for those out there who still have tags season's probably over and this year's antlers are falling off and there's nothing we can do about it now so let's talk about next year's antlers there we go (laughs) so so uh food plotting uh 2012 here you you talked about it i mean uh, there's some things that we can get a head start on here and there's some other things that we probably need to hold off a while even though we might get a beautiful sunny 50 degree day in the middle of february and we can hardly stand staying inside but uh if you go ahead and uh, throw some seed on the ground you may be just throwing your money away huh you know that's so true you know the professional farmers i i one of my big things in life is I don't want to reinvent the wheel. And, and corn farmers and soybean farmers across America follow some certain guidelines. It's not the almanac of when to plant. And let's just talk about soybeans. They're coming a more and more common food plot plant. And they're very durable, very drought resistant. Nothing wrong with soybeans. On a real small plot, they may be overbrowsed. So that's not a good choice there. But if you have more acreage or fewer deer, some combination, 
And we know this is there's no guesswork. We know for a fact that soybeans planted in soil that's about 60 degrees, 60 degrees at about an inch or two inches deep grow the best, germinate the best, fastest, healthiest than any other temperature. So if you plant earlier than that, that seedling's going to struggle. It's going to be weak from the very start, and that plant will never express its full potential. And if you plant later than that, the, the, there's heat stress, and there's other, there's more insects, and there's other factors. 60, 61 degrees is about the ideal time. And now, soil temperatures change slower than air temperatures, so it's not like you got to, you know, jump out that minute and plant. It's going to be a gradual warm up. Mm-hmm. And and then you got some common sense, like the farmers have. Okay, the soil's finally warmed up to 60 degrees but there's a blizzard out in the Rockies coming our way, then you're going to hold off because you don't want that cold and the frost and everything hitting your young seeds or plants out there. Mm-hmm. So in most states, most states throughout America have websites that tell you the average soil temperature. And, and they predict, okay, we're at 59 at two inches deep. In about five or six days, we're going to ease up towards 60. And they take, this is interesting, I think, they take soil temperature at 9 a.m. in the morning. Because it cools all night long, and it won't reach 60, and you know it, it'd be the coldest at about 9 a.m. Then start warming up. Mm-hmm. So when we don't go out and do it at three in the afternoon, we do it at 9 a.m. in the morning, or just look at your state's website. So is there also a resource for what the optimum soil temperature is for all the different kinds of stuff that? Most of, food yeah, most of like, them. Yeah, most of them. For clover, does that matter? I mean, that's more really on the surface, right? You know, clover is different. A lot of people I frost seed clover, uh, and, and ideally you want to – frost seed just means you're throwing the seed on top of the ground, and, and when the ground, of course, frosts, it heaves and goes back and forth, and that tends to work the seed in the soil. Mm-hmm. And ideally you want to throw that seed out when there's about three or four more frosts left. So depending on where you are, I mean, that may never happen in Florida. You may be waiting till May in the northern states. So, and, and again, every year is different. But mm-hmm. I love frost seed and clover. Here's where I think a lot of people go wrong on frost seed and clover. If you frost seed clover into a weed patch, the weeds are going to dominate because they're already established. Mm-hmm. To really frost seed clover well, you want to put it, in with something that you want to grow, like maybe you had an older stand of clover, you just wanted to kind of reignite or refresh a little bit, add some clover to it, or you had some wheat out there that really got browsed down, mm-hmm. and you want to throw some clover in with it or something. Mm-hmm. But if you just throw it on an old pond bank and think, I'm going to make me a little hidey hole food plot here, and that pond bank is covered with fescue, the clover doesn't stand a chance. So you need to clean or rid those weeds off the fall before, or have something planted like wheat that you just want to go into. And and, and in that situation, frost seeding is a wonderful, inexpensive technique. What if you have a, like a, I've got an area, okay? It's a, I have a friend who is a Christmas tree farmer, okay? He, mm-hmm. He's got a tree farm, and mm-hmm. we're going to do some food plots at his property this year. And mm-hmm. I've got a particular area that's a corner of a field where, He's basically just got a few junk trees, trees that, for whatever reason, never really, and they just can be, it's mostly open ground there. It's probably, say, a half an acre area, okay, and it's Mm -hmm. just tall grass and trees. Now, if we want to put clover in there, we haven't cleared it out last fall. We can still do that this spring, but we're going to have to do a little more preparation, right? 
you are. You know, it's just most likely fescue or orchard grass, from what I'm hearing you say. And you're going to need to let that green up, you know, and get green three to six inches tall. And just spray that with glyphosate. That's the active ingredient in Roundup. So either Roundup or a generic variety of Roundup. And, and spray it with about two quarts per acre of active ingredient. And, and what we call burn it down. And then you can either no-till drill in or till that or do something so the seed gets seed-to-soil contact. If you throw it on all that duff, sure. the seed literally is not going to get down to the soil and it'll just die laying there. Right, right. So kill the grass and then disc it up and then right. just kind of maybe harrow it after that or something and then throw the... throw the you know, or, or, I, or plant it and drag it or just throw it in there and let it find its way. Well... Let's talk about that a second. There's a huge amount of good university research coming out now. You know, for years everyone's talked about fertilizer, and I have to, or NPNK, or whatever. And we really have ignored what I'm going to call the life of soil, all the great beneficial bacteria and, and microbes that really hold soil together and, and create all the little trace elements or synthesize these trace elements or things that they really make it work. And we're seeing some reduced yields in some areas because farmers have been putting down NPNK like soil tests, but they haven't, quote-unquote, taken care of the soil. And food plot farmers are the same way. And every time you dis soil or turn it over and expose it sunshine, you're killing those beneficial bacteria or desiccating them. You're drying them out. And, and what I went to on my farm is either I, I spray, like we're talking about the clover, and then I broadcast it right on top. I do it right before rain and let the rain work the seed in. Or on my bigger fields, I, I rent the county's no-till drill or I have a no-till drill and I drill in. And I have food plots on my land for eight years that I've owned my land. I've never disc. And, mm. and I literally, I don't own a disc. I do not own a disc. I'm a huge food plot guy. And I do not own a disc. And I got to tell you, I, I'm turning my soil. When I got here, there wasn't much soil. And what was here was brown and crumbly. And it, and it wasn't alive. It wasn't alive at all. And now in my older food plots where I've been doing this, it's black. It smells like potting soil. And you reach down and pull up a plant up, and you smell the root system or the dirt clinging to the roots. And it's not compacting. I don't. It's not crusting over after it rains. And it's much healthier. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're producing some really good deer. I'm talking county record deer year after year, the biggest deer in the county, literally. Year after year is we're taking care of our dirt because I don't have any supplemental feeding program going on. I don't I don't have any other magic foo foo dust going on. I'm just taking care of the dirt and let the deer live a little older, letting them express their potential, and we're just getting fabulous results. So what else do you do to take care of dirt besides not disking it? You know, one of the biggest things I see all around America, if you, if, you know, if you've got a field that's probably been disc in the past, it's an old ag field or, or an old logging deck or something like that, and you're going to make a food plot there, is I get a half-inch piece of rebar or a half-inch pipe, and, I, and if it's half-inch pipe, I plug dirt in one end or something like that, and just put your weight on it, and you notice when you're, you know, just it's half-inch is kind of standard size, and as you're putting your weight on this piece of half-inch pipe, let's say it goes to first inch down real easy, second inch a little easier, but let's just say about inch three or four or five, it just it just stops. It doesn't gradually get harder to push down. It just comes to a stop. Well, that's a hard pan. And what happens is when you disc, all the way to that tractor and, and all the way to those, you know, the disc is coming down those little, what, eighth-inch wide points on the bottom of a disc blade or something. 
and all that weight is compacting all the soil below that point where you're not churning the soil. Mm. So you disc a field and you look at it and you say, boy, I've, I've made a great seed bed. It's fluffy and it's aerated and it's loose. This is going to be great. And, and your plants start off really good and they just, they just don't do too good. They're like limey green color or they don't reach full height or whatever. Probably what happened is the roots hit that hard pan where you've compacted the soil right below where you loosened it. And if that happens, it's it's painful to break. You you have two options. You can either get a bigger tractor and, and, and what's called a ripper or a big tine about 18 inches deep. And it fractures that hard pan literally so moisture can go up and down through it like it should and mm-hmm. insects and minerals can. Or you have to totally get the disc off there and wait longer for earthworms and, and other insects, beneficial insects, to loosen that up for you. And if I could, I just want to say one thing. You know, we're deer hunters, and we don't ever think about it, but I love to fish. I'm not a talented fisherman, so I love earthworms. You know, a bobber and a worm, and I can have a good day. Mm-hmm. And But I really wasn't until the last two years I understood just how beneficial earthworms were. And if you've got a healthy population of earthworms, they give you about 20 pounds of organic nitrogen per acre a year. Mm-hmm. Well, if you had to pay for that, that's kind of an expensive fertilizer task. And, and besides giving you the nitrogen, they're, they're aerating the soil, you know, they're tunneling through, they're loosening up, they're disking it. And since we stopped disking, uh, man, my kids and I can go down here, of course, my land's real rocky, and flip just a handful of rocks in our food plots and find all the earthworms we need for a half a day of fishing. And my beans are more productive, and again, my antlers are bigger. Again, just taking care of that soil instead of just ignoring it and say, well, I'm going to disc it. I love tractors. It's good therapy because I, I love riding a tractor. I'll sit there and ride a tractor all day long. Can't hear your cell phone. You can't feel it vibrate. No one can get a hold of you. And it's great, great getaway. But I'm probably doing more damage to my dirt than I am good. Talk to me a little bit about site selection for food plots. Obviously, there's a variety of places where people will do their food plotting from, you know, everything obviously from uh, abandoned agriculture fields or, or you know, sort of fringes of, of agriculture fields to people mm-hmm. who are doing things in the woods. Uh, what do you look for in terms of uh, site selection when it comes to, uh, you know, both your hunting strategies as well as things like sunlight and uh, soil quality and that, that sort of thing? Great, great point. Here, I, I actually have some some really candid points about that. First, you have to have sunlight. No matter where it is, you have to have sunlight. Sunlight, we all remember back from high school biology, is the key to photosynthesis. And we were all bored when we were taught that in seventh grade biology. As a deer biologist, I'm getting more and more excited about because photosynthesis makes sugar. And sugar is what drives deer to eat plants. The more sugar, the more they like it. So if you're getting half-day sunshine on your food plot, you're probably not getting as much photosynthesis or sugar production as you should. And your plants won't be quite as palatable. Now, there's all these arguments about what deer like to eat and what they don't like to eat. And I would like to share with you a huge mistake I made in my past that taught me this lesson, so I'll never forget it. Many years ago, I started a company called Biologic. Many, many years ago. I don't own any more, so I can speak very candidly about it. And, and we were looking for new plants. We were importing these plants to New Zealand. And, you know, we were doing pretty good, actually. And a guy introduced me to a plant called brown midrib. It's a type of sorghum that they were growing way out in West Texas. And it's real drought resistant and has, it produces tons and tons, a lot of good features. He says, man, we just can't keep the deer out here. They're just wiping it out. They're just, they're just wearing it out. And I thought, I have stumbled on 
this inexpensive plant that grows tons that deer love, and it's easy to grow. It chokes out all the weeds. It's easy to grow. I mean, it's the magic bean, and I found it. Mm-hmm. And, and I bought a bunch of it, and we rapidly put it in a, uh, in a bag and started selling it because clearly the deer were just mauling it. They were just mauling it. But you know what? Brown midrib is the only green plant in West Texas in August. It's the best food out there, period. So, of course, every deer is going to it. You brought that back over to South Carolina or Georgia or Pennsylvania, and the woods are green, and there's all kind of ragweed and smilax and catbriar, and deer didn't touch it. Mm. It looked ugly on Grant, and it was ugly. It was stupid of me. I was young, and it was stupid. And, and so palatability is never a blanket statement. Palatability on food plot plants is always relative to what's the next best plant in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of hunters get taken in by their buddy in Texas said this was working good, or their buddy in Michigan said this. You need to understand what's going to work in your neighborhood. And clover may be the greatest thing since sliced bread where you live. Clover in the south where it gets hot and dry in the summers usually doesn't make it through a hot, dry summer. Uh, so plants are kind of region or even neighborhood specific. Mm-hmm. So sun sh- I'm looking for sunshine. I'm looking for plants that I know do well in my area, or I'm not going to plant all my food plots in something new. I'm going to experiment with just one food plot, and I may find something good. And then I want it where I can either get equipment to it if it's a large food plot, or I, I love hidey holes. You and I have talked about hidey holes, little bitty food plots, you know, just to, the size of three or four pickups in the middle of the woods mm-hmm. where a tree has died or there's no pond or you've cleared out some brush where it's getting full sunshine. And all of a sudden you get the Lush food plot in the middle of the woods, that can be such a buck magnet. Mm-hmm. I love those. Mm-hmm. And so looking either it's really hidden so my buddies don't find it because my buddies all steal my tree stand spots, or it's wide open where I can get equipment to it if it's a bigger food plot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I know here, you know, not we don't have big agriculture like like the Midwest, where you have thousands and tens of thousands of, you know, contiguous acres of, of corn and soybeans like that. But there's there's a fair amount of agriculture here in Pennsylvania. And, of course, there are quite a bit of, of corn and soybeans mm-hmm. around. I always mm-hmm. tend to, I, I like clover just because I think it offers something different. I think that the deer seem to like it. Uh, you know, throughout the summer and, and right into the archery season. And uh, I don't know why I would want to necessarily plant corn or soybeans unless I had uh, a specific intention of maybe protecting that from the deer until all the other farmers are going to cut theirs and then open it up to them. But I, I don't personally see it as my most productive option, especially for somebody who doesn't have a lot of ground to work with, you know? Am I way off there, or...? or? No, I think you're right. You know, if you're planting a five-acre food plot, then soybeans are a really good option. They're just really drought-resistant. They're easy to grow. They're easy to keep the weeds out. You're not mowing it all summer or, you know, buying more expensive herbicides to keep grass out. So, But if you're in a small little food plot, clover's a great tool. I, I don't think there is any magic bean. I mean, I look at clover being having a specific mission. I look at soybeans having a mission. I'm not as big a corn fan as a lot of guys. I mean, if the local farmer's growing corn, that's great. Corn's a little bit more expensive and tough to grow for an average food plot farmer. 
uh, brassicas are a great late season crop. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really probably nothing better as far as making more tonnage. And again, me into taking care of soil brassicas. Some brassicas, anyway, have a great characteristic of putting down a really, really deep root system, really deep. Yeah, they're and they're great. Like you said, I, the only experience I've had with brassica is you have to be realistic about when it's going to be productive for you from a hunting standpoint. You you may find that the attractiveness of that during your October november time frame isn't nearly as much as it will be in your december january time frame so well you're absolutely right it, it really depends again on on two things temperatures brassicas mobilize sugars when it gets colder so they literally become sweeter you can taste it if you pull the leaf off and eat it it's bitter when it's young it gets much sweeter when it gets old on most brassicas there's some new varieties come out that change that a little bit and the second thing is Brassicas are still relatively uncommon to a deer, although they've been out for 10 years now, more or less, in a deer world. So if you're in an area where your neighbors have been planting a lot of brassicas, deer know what they are, they tend to eat them earlier. Well, if they're, if they're yeah. new to a deer, they don't touch them. If the deer density is real high, like West Texas, you get a brassica up two inches tall, and it's really bitter to me, deer mow it down. Mm. Mow it down, because it's the only food in the neighborhood. Yeah, well, and here, you know, again, a similar type thing. Uh a neighbor actually at my buddy's tree farm has a nice food plot with brassicas in there and the deer have been absolutely hammering it. I saw some trail camera pictures the other day, um, you know, with like 20 deer in the picture and I had sat in a tree stand a few hundred yards from there not too long ago and didn't see a thing, but that's because there's no food over at my buddy's farm, you know, and there's no crop standing. So, you know, a late season food source like that can be dynamite can be dynamite. You know, and that brings up a really good point. Except for soybeans, which are dominant in the summer. If I'm planting a fall food plot, I always, and I mean this literally, always want a blend. Something that matures earlier, gets those sugars moving earlier, something that matures mid-season, and something that matures late season. Or you have a whole bunch of different food plots and one's early, mid, and late season cultivars. But I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket, and no one plant, except pretty much soybeans, is palatable from when it comes out of ground to when it's over-mature. You know, alfalfa over-mature, deer are not going to touch it. Clover over-mature, deer are not going to touch it. And, and so I want to blend, and, and a little clover, a little wheat, some brassicas is a really good generic blend for a fall food plot. So let's talk a little bit about blends and product that's out there. Obviously, Grant, I'm sure that you have a particular brand that you use on your property that you like. You know, I don't. Really, I don't. Okay. I'll be very candid. I don't. I wish I did. (laughs) I wish I did. Because I I think it's confusing, to be honest with you. I mean, there's how many brands out there. Bunches. I don't know. Every company claims that they have, you know, hybridized the specific clover or their specific you know kinds of brassicas that they're using in there to be the most palatable or the most browse resistant and then i run into guys who just think that going to the local farm co-op and getting you know whatever bulk ladino clover seed that they can get there is just as good and then of course you talk to other people and you say no 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 you know that's no good how do how do people really know where to get their seed how to evaluate whether it's a quality food plot seed and or are they even all that much different from 
you know, agricultural varieties? Sure. Great question. Uh, let's start at the beginning. There are inexpensive seeds in all varieties, all corn, soybeans, clover, whatever, turnips, whatever, called VNS, and that's a variety nonspecific. And, and those are when you go to the local co-op or the feeding seed and they got something in a tub where you got a little scoop and you buy it by the pound or in a brown bag, it's not labeled. And there's really strict government rules that, that govern this. I'm sure there's people cheating or whatever, but VNS is generic and it's basically really old genetics. And there, there may be so like white Dutch clover is in everybody's yard probably across America, whether they want it or not. Mm-hmm. And it's a durable clover that will grow. It's drought-resistant, and it's drought-resistant because it goes dormant really easy. So if it's in a food plot, you don't want it going dormant. Because mm-hmm. if it goes dormant, it may be alive next year, but when you want to hunt over it, it's just a brown carpet. VNS varieties, and you can look on the back of a bag because the government makes them, tries to make them tell the truth. And it, it may say some fancy name like Big Buck Clover. And then they say VNS. Well, they just put a name on there, but it's no better clover than you can go buy for, you know, X cents a pound at the feed and seed. If it's a proprietary blend or variety of clover, not a blend, but a variety of clover, it will have the name of that out there, not Big Buck. It'll be a scientific, like a Latin name. And there are different those clovers. And, and But they're not like one's better than the other. They're usually regional specific. So I, that's why I don't really endorse or get behind one particular product. I have those options all the time. And I do agree with you. It's misleading. I think there's a loss of credibility in our market because of that. And so, for example, corn does really well in Pennsylvania. It's the right day length. It produces most bushels per acre. It defends against the insects that are coming in Pennsylvania. Probably wouldn't be worth a darn in Iowa. And those are specific cultivars, and the ag crops, corn and soybeans primarily, are researched and bred and rebred and selected down almost at county level. Food plot crops are not like that. But you can see some differences. So there's, you know, your hunting buddy in Maine may plant product XYZ and have really good luck with it. You may plant that same product, or I may plant it way over here in Missouri and not have that good luck with it. And there are some differences in the seeds that have been selected and bred for specific missions. Mm. So, but what I will go as far as say this, is there a 200% difference between turnip A that has so-and-so name and, and just a, a white bulb turnip that you buy to feed and seed? No, I doubt there's a 200% difference. So if there's a 10% different price, yeah, I'll go for the proprietary one. If there's a, you know, a 50 times difference in price, no, I'm going to buy the generic one. And, so and with, I'm always going to put those in a blend, even if I make my own blend, which I do sometimes. I'll go buy some wheat, and I'm, I'll buy some, some type of brassica, whether it's a turnip or a rape, has a bulb or doesn't have a bulb, and I'll buy some clovers, and I'll, blend, I'll just blend it together in my seed hopper and plant it. Mm. And, and there are some really good commercial blends out there. Unfortunately, there's so many knockoffs or people that buy this VNS and put it in a really shiny bag with a big buck on the front that's really diluted the market. There are some really good products out there, and the really, really good ones tend to cost more. So uh, I guess it would be good if we could give a really easy answer, but there doesn't sound like there is one, and people are going to have to do a little trial and error to find out what works best for them. where they're Trial and error and what works best for them, and, and, and I think the easy answer is if you're planting a fall blend, a really good recipe is have some brassicas in there because they're really good for late cold and they do a great job of building your soil. They have these little bitty roots that go way down, six, eight, ten feet deep. I'm not talking about like 
groundhog radishes, or whatever the name is, that big tuber you see is not busting up the ground way deep. It's the little finger roots, the little hair-like roots that are going six or eight feet deep to do a good job of busting up the ground. And they pull nutrients from really deep in the subsoil back up to the surface. Mm. And then when that turnip or that radish rots, all those nutrients are released right there for a new plant to grab and go with, where the new plant is not reaching six foot deep. And that's a huge, that's, a, that's, that's reason enough for me to plant radishes and turnips right there. Because mm-hmm. I'm saving money on fertilizer. So you want to get some brassicas in there. What else would you have in your ideal? I, I always love wheat. Wheat comes up really quick. It will grow anywhere. And, and when it's young, deer love it. And it's pretty nutritious. Wheat responds really well to fertilizer. And so it's going to use nutrients. Deer are going to eat it. Deer like wheat. It's inexpensive. It's drought tolerant. It's easy to grow. And then I like some clovers in there, whether I have a perennial or an annual food crop, whether I expect it to last two years and, and I'm going to spray the, the wheat out in the spring with a grass-specific herbicide so clover can really take off, or whether I'm going to spray everything and, and plant soybeans or something else in there. I like a little clover because when it clover won't do much in the fall, but in the spring it's one of the first things out of ground. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and deer need it that time of year. And what about, just kind of as an aside, what is the attractiveness uh, for turkeys? You talk about clover, you know, probably greening up in the spring and, and getting some good growth. Is a good clover plot, will that be a, a turkey magnet as well? Oh, my gosh, yeah. You know, people plant all kinds of crops for turkeys, or specifically in the south, they plant, goodness, the name just slipped my mind. Oh, that uh, chufa? little peanut thing. The chufa. chufa, chufa, thank you. Plant chufas and not much else eats chufa besides hogs, which you don't want to meet in your chufas, and turkeys. And and if you diss those chufas to make them available to the turkeys, that's really illegal. You can't manipulate them that way. People do it, but it's it's really illegal. But a turkey, a turkey will go to clover, and they're and they're eating the clover, but they really love the insects in there too. They mm. love those insects. Yeah. And clover, young clover's full of insects, not bad insects, good insects. Mm-hmm. So man, I love turkey hunting over new clover. I've killed a pile of turkeys over new clover fields. That's great. And uh, so some wheat, some clover, some brassicas, is that pretty much your standard right there? That's my standard blend. And, you know, and if I'm somewhere else where I know something's really going to work well, like if I'm out west, brassicas are really tough and really drought-hardy and really cold-hardy. I'm going to up the percentage of brassicas in there. If I'm over east, I'm going to drop it down to maybe a pound or two pounds per acre because brassicas can dominate and shade out your other crops real easily. Mm. You know, I, there's no need to plant nine or ten pounds of brassicas per acre in the east in most places, unless you got a really heavy deer density. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, here's a little bit of an offbeat question. It applies to my situation, but I think there's probably a lot of people that experience this. You know, let's say in the case of my buddy who has the tree farm, okay, he's a big mm-hmm. hunter and he loves deer, but he really doesn't like what the deer due to his Christmas trees, okay? The buck, mm-hmm. the bucks in particular, you know, they come in mm-hmm. there and rub on mm-hmm. those young trees, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and that's not good for his, his cash crop. Sure. Uh, sure. Obviously, farmers, you know, crop farmers the same way. You know, they may like the deer, but they only want to feed so much of their corn and their soybeans to deer. Absolutely. When, when you talk about putting food plots around areas where you've got commercial agriculture operations, are you enhancing or mitigating your deer browse problem. In other words, if we put 
several food plots on this tree farm. Are we going to get more deer rubbing his trees, or are we going to be encouraging him to stay out of there and get into the food? Oh, um, I'm not sure I'm going to give you the answer you want on that one. Anytime you add more nutrients in a palatable form, you're probably going to end up with more deer. And more deer means more damage at some point. Now, with that said, the strategy you're talking about is what we call short-stopping. And we had a long-term contract for a very large botanical garden, Callaway Gardens down in Georgia, big fancy golf courses and azaleas. And they were, when we started, they were experiencing about a million dollars a year of damage on the azaleas, deer-eating azaleas, mm-hmm. eating rubbing. And what we did is, in that botanical garden and golf course is about 2,000 acres, and the family owns about 10,000 acres. So... We would go out in that 10,000 acres, which was just closed canopy hardwood forest, and we established several acres of really high-quality food plots. And in that case, we were able to hold several deer from going to the botanical garden and, and, and stay in the timber and eat. Mm-hmm. Now, putting a clover field next to a 40-acre bean field is not enough of a shortstop program. And, and the only way to really reduce the damage on that bean field is let the air out of some deer. Okay, <laughs> gotcha. Hey, fair enough, fair enough. I just thought I'd throw it out there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because it is, I mean, it is a legitimate concern, and I know, I'm sure it's something, you know, a lot of people think about it. My my buddy certainly does. He's like, yeah, you know, I want to have the deer in here, but I don't want to have the deer in here, you know? <laughs> you know, one thing we can do, and we do, it's kind of something I stumbled on, but it works extremely well, is you, we, we know we can stop almost 100% of deer <clears throat> from using whatever area we want, apple orchards, whatever, through a two-foot-tall electric fence. And, and it's not, but the secret is not just one two-foot-tall fence. We we put a piece of electric fence, I'm going from memory here, but I, I've got them on my land right now, I think eight inches and 24 inches tall, which I can jump, and I'm not that athletic. So a two-strand but, electric fence. Yeah, two-strand, and then we come out, you know, so let's say that's against the apple orchard. Mm-hmm. Then we come out away from the apple orchard three more feet, and we put one strand electric fence, so it's a double wide fence, okay? Mm. 12 inches high. So I've got two rows of posts. I've got my row of posts with an 8 inch and a 24 inch wire, and I use actually the, the tape, so it's a half inch wide. Mm-hmm. And then I come on out three feet, and I put one a foot tall. And, and I cannot explain to you why that works, but I've successfully, and other people, many people have this is university research, this is not fiction kept deer out of apple orchards or soybean fields way better than anything guard dogs or of course human hair or sprays or rotten eggs or all the stuff you hear about deer get accustomed propane cannons we've tried that deer get accustomed a propane cannon will keep a deer out about three days then they realize well that's just a loud noise but it's not hurting me Mm. but i think it is two things when i get down at a deer's level and i put my head down at this deer's level and i know how deer vision doesn't work quite like ours does and, and I look at that fence, it's kind of spooky. I think it's a 3D uh, kind of an optical illusion. And the second thing is deer almost test everything with their nose or their tongue. When they come up to something new, a new feed or whatever, they, 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 you see them get down, they stick their nose out. And a little solar power, this solar power chargers are so inexpensive and so efficient anymore that on my fences here, my little food plots, I save till the fall. Like you're talking about planting soybeans and saving them till the fall mm. on my little kill spots. I'm putting about 8,000 volts to that little electric fence. And I put trail cameras out there, and I've seen, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think I've seen blue fire come out the back end of a deer whose tongue was on, I'm teasing, but 
I'm I, serious. Eight thousand volts. That sounds like it would kill me, man. No, it won't. No, it won't. I, I, I've I've had my wife because I'm not brave enough, but I've had my wife grab it several times, and I can assure you, it doesn't kill her. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't make her very happy, but it doesn't kill her. And you're running all that off a solar panel. Solar panel. Inexpensive. I use Gallagher electric fences. I'd say that because it's cattle fence people. Okay. Go to your cattle store and get a Gallagher uh, a solar charger. It'd be a lot cheaper than buying something that has a deer on it. Yeah. And in the in the in the in the cattle electric fence and and fence in a little food plot. And I leave conveniently. I'll put the little plastic handles you you make gates out of with electric fence. Mm-hmm. And I'll leave that gate or I'll leave a hole where I can get a tractor in the spray or plant or whatever I'm doing. And I'll leave the gate up, you know, all year long. Yeah. And then about deer season, I take the gate down. Yeah, and, and put, and put with, your tree stand right in range of the gate, right? Well, of course. <laughs> and, and, and within about five days, if there's a good food source inside deer, deer will find that bottleneck. Mm. And I'm just, I'm just creating a bottleneck. Like when I was a kid, I would walk fences on our farms trying to find where a tree fell down or we'd tie a fence down or whatever, making an easy place for deer to jump, kind of in the area to want to go anyway, you know, mm-hmm. and hunt there. And we, we'd call them fence gaps. I'm hunting a fence gap stand today, and almost all hunters I talk to talk about, yeah, I got a fence gap somewhere I hunt. Yeah. Well, I'm just making a fence gap. I'm just making one. Instead of waiting for a tree to fall on the fence, I'm just making a fence gap. Yeah. Two other things, you know, because we're running – getting towards sure. time but two sure. other things i want to hit real quick the first one's an easy one just think something that we haven't really elaborated on but people if we're going to do any food plotting need to be reminded of and that's the importance of a soil test you know my I, i'm summing it up really easy the one definite i've said a lot of wishy-washy stuff but the one definite i do no matter where i work period my first expense is a soil test period if i can't afford a soil test i don't plant food plot period well, my fact second of the, fact of the matter is it, it's not much of an expense anyway. No, ten to twelve dollars. Yeah, yeah, I use a private lab because they do it better than most university labs. I use Walters Ag W A T E R S WaltersAg dot com does awesome food plot tests. They get food plots. The people there are hunters and they get it. The, the university guys are worried about growing four hundred acres of soybeans. The second thing I do is always make sure the pH is right. Before I worry about fertilizer, I worry about pH. That's my biggest priority. And then I worry about fertilizer, and then I worry about what I'm going to plant. That's my priority every time. That's great. Yeah, if you if you don't if you don't know where you're starting from and what you need to do to get the soil moving in the right direction, you're not going to see the results that you want from your. Efforts. Everybody thinks it's about growing the most, which is part of it, but it's really about palatability. Healthier plants are much tastier to deer, mm. and I don't want to go through all this effort and sweat and expense. And the deer eating on my neighbor's farm. I want to meet on my farm. And that's where the soil test is a big tool. Now, the last thing I want to throw at you, Grant, and, you know, full disclosure, Grant has no idea I'm going to ask him about this. This may be a little bit out of left field for you, but it's right. very, very germane to what you do on the proving grounds and what, what we've been talking about this whole interview. Mm-hmm. I, I had, I started thinking about something last week or no beginning of this week grant i saw online uh, a news article about a study that had to do with glycophosphate okay roundup weed killer and uh-huh. it was done by a university over in germany but what the, what they had done is basically done urine testing on a whole wide number of people and determined that because 
glycophosphate is in such common use in agriculture throughout the world now, particularly with all the, the Roundup Ready crops, you know, the genetically modified mm -hmm. crops, that mm -hmm. it's kind of ubiquitous in our environment and it gets into the groundwater. And what they found in this study is that Depending on the person, the concentration could be from a low level to a very high level, some of like 20 times what government recommendation was to be in drinking water. But bottom line is every single one of us, we're walking around with some of this stuff in our bodies. Okay, and I'm sure mm -hmm. it's not the only chemical. We've all got a variety of chemicals oh, yeah. in our Toothpaste bodies. Toothpaste okay? and everything else, yeah. Because yeah. As, as mankind, we have degraded the environment to a certain extent and, and there's nothing yes. we can do about it and yes. and I wrote a blog entry about this and I said basically this now I realize that all the chemicals used in all the food plots in North America if you if you combined all of those chemicals and added it all up it would be a fraction of probably a single percent of the chemicals that are used in the grand scheme of commercial industrial agriculture, okay? So or, or golf courses. Exactly. Actually, the number one use of chemicals in, in okay. America is golf courses. So golf course. So, so again, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not pointing yeah. the finger at us per se and saying sure. uh, we're the bad guys. But mm -hmm. that said, I'm like, on the other hand, we like to consider ourselves conservation-minded people, stu mm -hmm. stewards of the environment. Mm -hmm. And I said, why is it? That being the case, that we're very concerned about the next generation and leaving everything better than we find it. Why are we in the sporting community? I said, I know a lot of people. I mean, you'd be a great example, somebody who has a significant amount of property, does a lot of great work managing it. I don't know anybody like a Grant Woods who does it organically. Why is there no organic food plot movement within the entire hunting community or maybe there is and I just well, never I think heard there about is. It. I think there is a slight one. I'm, I'm doing some work and I re there's some great guys at the NRCS National Resource Sciences that are looking at, at, at what I call cover crops and I think food plot guys naturally cover crop like I had soybeans here this summer I planted wheat this fall. I didn't spray. I just drilled the wheat in and the wheat comes up and is really dense, and so it chokes out the weeds. So I'll have to use a very minimal herbicide this spring because I will just go in and real lightly kill the wheat with minimal herbicide and drill soybeans right in without ever tilling the ground or exposing more weed seeds. So the biggest thing we can do to not use herbicides is adapt what I've been promoting, this no-till system or this system where we leave the vegetation there and we just let it decompose, which makes fertilizer and organic matter, and put your next crop right in it. Mm -hmm. But when we till, we're bringing up weed seeds. And gotcha. the reason we use either food plotters or commercial guys, herbicide is, literally there's no way we can feed the 6 billion people on this planet or the amount of white-tailed deer in America without herbicide. Well, the deer, the deer are going to eat something. They're going to no, eat, they're going to no, eat no, 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 back up, back up. Let's get this really clear, and I'm going to make someone really mad out there. We probably have 100, 200, 300, 400 times the amount of deer in North America right now than we had when the settlers were here. And we know that because there were two botanists, Meshoi and Bartram, that went all through the area trying to decide whether this was worth going to war over by Spain and by England. And they took great notes, and you can go to the library, I can't read this, the Spanish, but I can read the English. It's King's English. I've done this. You check it out. You can check out Mishoei's work. 
and read it and talk about his observations. And he was a great observer. So we have a pretty accurate estimate of how many deer were here. And without all the soybeans and corn, if it was a closed canopy forest, we couldn't feed them. They would not be near as many deer here, period, unequivocally. Yeah. And there, oh, right. and there wouldn't not... be as corn and soybeans here if there wasn't herbicide. Yeah, probably true, probably true. Um, I don't claim to be an expert on all that. Um, it's just something, I mean, I'm sure you think about it, right? I mean, I do. I, That's I talk, why, like I, using I, these brassicas to kill insects versus using an insecticide. Brassicas have chemicals in there that are pretty good on killing insects. Yeah. Going, going. I don't think we're ever going to see total organic farming. And, and a lot of the people who claim to be organic farmers, a lot of federal reports out that they're not. I mean, they, they put an organic label on there so they can charge a lot more for the produce, but they're sliding in some commercial fertilizer, or a little Roundup or whatever. Mm-hmm. But going that way, and, and again, just being practical, reducing the amount of chemicals we use, letting our crops break down naturally and putting that fertilizer back in the ground, using rotational crops like these deep-rooted brassicas that bring nutrients back up to the soil surface mm-hmm. so we don't have to apply as much commercial fertilizer. Sure. My land, actually, I'm gonna, I'll get one brownie point in here before I go. I use composted and humidified turkey poop. It's as organic as it can get. That's the source of fertilizer I use. It's practical for me because I live about 45 miles from Arkansas, and there's a lot of turkey houses in Arkansas. But so. that organic fertilizer has really helped my deer herd versus commercial NPNK. Mm-hmm. Now, if you live 200 miles away, the trucking's so expensive, it's just not practical to use it. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, I, I think it's a good, I think it's a real good discussion to have because... I just don't want us as a community, as a hunting community, to, to be dismissive of it is my main point because, you know, it's easy, you know, and I talk to guys sometimes who are like, well, you know, all that stuff has a short lifespan in the soil or whatever, or it, it goes away, or, okay, and again, I'm not a chemist, but I'm like... Some does, some doesn't. Some does, We've clearly some made great progress from the old days of really, really harsh herbicides. But, you know, I think, I, you know, the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. And I'd venture to say that if we poured a shot glass full of any of the things that we spray out there, there wouldn't be too many of us volunteering to drink it, you know. So we'd all probably like to put as little of that out there as we as we can. I'm sure that you would, you know. And if you could do it with yep. none, you'd do it with none. Well, it's inexpensive. It's better for me, better for my kids. And I, do, I agree with you. As we use these more advanced food plot techniques, we can get away from the old plow and spray system. So, so anyway, food for thought, you know. And and I, I'm I'm sure that as as methods develop, as products develop, that you'll be keeping your ear to the ground on that sort of thing. And yeah, I mean, I just think. It kind of goes hand in glove with who we are as sportsmen, that if there's a way to do it in a constantly more environmentally friendly manner, that, you know, we should be the ones at the forefront of doing it that way and promoting it. And, you know, if it works, the results will speak for themselves and other parts of the agricultural community will adopt those things, too, you know. Yep, I agree 100%. So, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the future. I, I'm an optimist, and I remain excited as we all learn and learn better techniques. We will avoid the errors of the past and do better for the future. So that was my soapbox for today, Grant. That was a good one. <laughs> Listen, man, it's always educational and entertaining to spend some time with you. I know that TV is probably going to have 
of scads of uh, information and episodes about uh, your spring food plotting efforts. So people can definitely check you out there at growingdeer.tv. And um, uh, every every week, new episode, and we're starting right now. We're just we got a little rain. We've been dry. We're waiting on a little this this little rain we're getting to dry out again and then we'll be pulling our soil test early i want everyone to pull soil test early so you're not in a crunch when the lab's really busy mm-hmm. and that gives you more time to shop for the fertilizers you need or plan or get better prices so first step which i'll be doing soon is that soil test and you see me do it i'll i'll live that testimony so february's great time to get your soil huh you know, you want it drier, you get a little bit more accurate reading when the soil's a little drier. So if it's not snow-covered or you haven't had a rain in a while, now is a great time to go pull those soil tests. All right, Grant. Well, we've got our marching orders. Let's go get some dirt and then uh, follow along with you as you uh, get your program up and running for another year. I wish you guys all the best in 2012. And uh, it's been pretty impressive to see the deer that you've been growing there at the Proving Grounds, and I'm sure that this year will be no exception, and you'll have another bunch of uh, really, uh, really dandy bucks to, to be excited about seeing out there in the fall, so keep up the good work. Thanks, Christian. All right, Grant. Well, thanks again for your time. Uh, I'll talk to you again soon, okay? Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's Hard-Hitting Access Arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.